welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And I realize, too, that we tend to go into, like, we tend to break the time-space continuum with this show a lot, too, because I just said good morning because we're recording at 8 o'clock in the morning, but... Other folks will be hearing this at like two o'clock in the afternoon. So there you go. Time travel on a Friday afternoon. I want to rec- uh, welcome to the show regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And new to the show, who we also found out is a listener. So thank you. Double thank you for joining us. Representative Taylor Small from Winooski, who is a progressive Democrat elected in 2020 and who also serves on the House Committee on Human Resource, uh, Human Services. So glad you can be with us, Taylor. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So I am looking forward to this conversation because we're going to be talking about Reach Up, which for those who don't know, is an anti-poverty program in Vermont geared towards supporting families with young children. And there is some lead, uh, there's a bill moving through the House right now. I don't believe it's made it to the Senate yet. It has made it to the Senate, Emily. It's inside the time-space continuum where things sit for a day between the House and the Senate. So gotcha. it is <laughs> somewhere in the hallway, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's making its way down the hallway. So it's H-464. Um, so we're going to be talking about that bill, but I'm also looking forward to this because Taylor uh, is very passionate about Reach Up. And then Emily um, has shared, and some listeners may know this, that she was on Reach Up as a young mother, but also a case manager for the program. So we have a lot of experience here. We can dive deep into this um, program. Taylor, I'd love to start with you. Just for folks who may not know Reach Up, what is the um, impact or, or how does it support young families? Oh, such a such a wonderful question. Um, so our Reach Up program is really supporting folks who have either transitioned out of the workforce or just having barriers to work in general. Um, and it's a family model. So really focusing on supporting young children. And as you said, the anti-poverty model is looking not only at the parents, but looking at that two-generation model of how are we impacting the youth as well. So folks on ReachUp are given a case manager. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the changes in 464 because it, it radically changes the work that will be done with case managers. Because um, right now it's a bit complicated. When we look at the, the values and the mission of ReachUp, which were actually just recently updated, it focuses on this collaborative process with families and meeting the goals that they need to achieve success and whatever that means for them. But when we look at the statute as it currently is, it's very convoluted and complicated and focuses a lot on pushing folks into work rather than understanding the the true barriers that exist for folks to be able to get to work. Interesting. And so so moving from that like very awesome idealistic and technical piece of it, I just want to sort of let listeners know. So Reach Up is our state welfare program. And most people who are on Reach Up call it welfare. Most people who have spent time on Reach Up, like near Reach Up, call it welfare. It's temporary aid to needy families. It was um, 
the welfare reform that happened in 1996 in the U.S. that really like radically transformed how we get aid to families and support families to make it um, both much harder for families to access that funding and um, add some services around it. Passed in 1996 under Clinton. I think most people remember that or don't, but it was a huge step and even like the personality of the Democratic Party, as well as um, how we support families, all of the sort of racist rhetoric around um, welfare mothers and black welfare mothers, um, eating bonbons, that whole thing, that all happened with welfare reform and led to the changes in temporary to needy families that is reach up. It took a few years for those reforms to hit Vermont in a real way. Um, and later on in this program, I might tell a fun story about some people who I know who sort of worked through that transition, but you get a small amount of money each month. Um, it's nowhere near enough to live on. If you need your housing paid for, you get a little bit more money each month. But um, Taylor, you probably know the actual dollar amounts better than I do, but it is not oh, possible I to survive on these dollars. Mm -mm. Absolutely not. Um, and thank you for giving that context, because it really is a, a program that uh, in in theory is supporting families. But in practice, we we know what families need. So we set a, a basic needs allowance um, every it should be updated every year, in my opinion. Um, but it actually is the work of the legislature to make sure that we're updating those rates. And so last year, the House Human Services Committee worked to update the basic needs allowance from 2011 rates to 2019. Um, so we're not even in line with the 2022 rates yet. And the housing allowance that uh, Representative Kornheiser was talking about actually hasn't changed since 2011 and is still uh, $400. Though if you are in Chittenden County, it's an additional $50 because we know that housing costs just a little bit more um, in Chittenden County. And so we usually frame this in, in a family of three. So thinking about a, a parent and two young children. And when we look at the basic needs allowance, it's currently at about $1,200. And so then we add in that $400 to bring us up to $1,600 is what should be paid out to families on a monthly basis. But we also apply what's called a rateable reduction uh, to the reach up program. And that is how uh, we make it cost effective and doesn't have a significant cost impact on the state. So the way that rateable reduction is calculated is we look at how much we are supposed to be paying out to families, how many families are participating in the program and how much money we have put aside in the budget and then calculate how do we make sure in this entitlement program that we are making those payments and that families are not losing their awards because of uh, the state not planning ahead. And so our current rateable reduction is 49.6%. Mm -hmm. So breaking it down that way, we cut what should be the basic needs allowance in half. And so that 1600 that we were talking about before now becomes $811 for a family of three on a monthly basis. Including rent. That includes including rent. Um, and that is that is yeah. cash in, in pocket, we would say. Of course, there is additional SNAP benefits and uh, fuel assistance and childcare, but that money goes directly pay to the, the provider. It doesn't actually go to the family. Mm -hmm. um, 
we can talk about SNAP benefits another day, but yep, that's uh, a whole yeah. other. <laughs> and so it's funny that like in the same sentence, Taylor, that you in describing this, that you had to say entitlement program, you also said rateable reduction and we are budgeting for this and we're not budgeting at the full entitlement that we have calculated. Mm -hmm. And so even something that's described in, you know, for decades as an entitlement program and this obligation of government, we are not even meeting halfway. So can we just pause quickly? Um, I think a lot of people don't, they hear the word entitlement program, it's quite a buzzword, but they don't actually know what that means. So if one of you would just quickly, like, what makes something an entitlement program and something not an entitlement program? I will let you take this one. Okay. And you can call me, well, you know, you can call me Emily in the real life. You're also welcome to call me Emily. Oh, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so an entitlement program is essentially like money that we get. It's a program from the feds designed by the feds that we get money from the feds to do. Um, sometimes entitlement programs are block grants and sometimes they're not block grants and there's all kinds of other stuff in there that we're not going to get into today. But it's basically that we, the feds have promised this to Vermonters and we have to sort of fulfill that promise is sort of the easiest way to explain it. But it's that if you qualify, then you're in it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, if you qualify, the state can't turn you away, even if the state has been like, well, we didn't budget for it this year. Yes. Okay. However, there are one of the things that Taylor worked so hard on this year is all of the reasons that people get turned away, I think, on some level um, because of their behavior in the program. And I think that's what I'm looking forward to talking to talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to um, hear about that, Taylor, if you'd like to, you know, how people actually are turned away. Yeah. Well, the, the piece about reach up is that uh, the focus is that it's a temporary assistance for needy families. Again, in that welfare reform program, it's really focusing on not, uh, not keeping on the program forever because we have this idea that folks who are impoverished or folks who are low income are just gaining from the state rather than um, wanting to get back into work, wanting to have a, a thriving possibility in their lives. And so what we were looking at this year is uh, those pieces that uh, Emily was talking about and the racist roots of work requirements and how it really goes against this model of supporting families and instead punishing them on this. Mm -hmm. And so we dug into it and said, how can we update this program and do what's best for families instead of thinking about how do we limit support? And so when we looked at the work requirements, we actually moved to a model that has been championed by the, the current director of the Reach Up program, Erin Olikin, who focuses on goal setting. And we have always really loved her approach um, to working with families. And so we wanted to put that into statute. As I said to her, I was like, I wish we could just put you into the statute so that the program was run in this fashion the entire time. Um, and that's the continuation piece. And so now instead of having these convoluted and actually working against one another, reading through the statute right now, it is not only challenging for participants, but it's challenging for case managers to know what the priorities are. The priorities of course should be meeting the, the barriers and helping folks overcome the barriers. But instead when it focuses on pushing folks into work, what we've seen is people be in unpaid work for 20 or 30 hours a week staying on the program much longer um, and not being able to 
truly succeed out of the program. So now in 464, we moved to that universal engagement model, which really is saying, as long as you are engaging in the program, as long as you are setting goals with your case manager and making progress on them, you are participating. And then it's looking at mental health. It's looking at substance use disorder. It's looking at being able to find stable housing and childcare and transportation, rather than saying, how do we get you into a job, even if that's not going to be sustainable? Mm-hmm. And with that move, it also removed deferments. We had a whole list of deferments or reasons why folks wouldn't have to participate in that work requirement. But now when we focus on work and workforce development as a continuum, any any progress that you are making towards your goals will count and maintain you in the program. So what that looks like for like a Vermonter who's applying for welfare is they go into the state office or apply online, um, fill out all the paperwork with all the warnings about fraud and they, you know, usually get sort of an eligibility interview or multiple eligibility interviews where they're sort of turning in paperwork um, that then all get scanned into the system and then they meet their financial, sort of the financial threshold. You need to have a dependent in your household. You meet that threshold. You need to have an, you know, your income needs to be low enough. You meet that threshold. You need to um, not have been on welfare for too long in your lifetime. So you meet that threshold. Is it still five years, Taylor? It is still five years. So you can't be on welfare for more than five years, your household. And so if, you know, for folks with older children or folks who have had multiple children, um, that can be really challenging. So you meet all those thresholds. And then once you get the little sort of like check mark, you deserve this from the government, then you move on to sort of the case manager process. And you're assigned someone who's sort of on the social work continuum, but not a trained social worker. They're called a case manager. And what they do is until this passes sort of under current law, what they do is they sit down and they work with someone and they basically um, figure out how someone can meet the sort of time eligibility of the program, like how they're going to spend their time. And so the options are you need to spend like a certain, depending on the age of your child, you need to spend a certain amount of time in productive activities. And those are mostly work. Mm-hmm. And so that can be actually working, which is very rare because if you're actually working, you're probably not eligible anymore. It can be looking for work, but that's for a very, very short period of time that you're allowed to say you're looking for work. You can, and then, so most of people on the reach up program with children that are over the age of two are engaging in these sort of subsidized unpaid work training programs where they have to go somewhere for 20 or 30 hours a week and engage in, it's sort of like a unpaid internship kind of vibe. Um, and there's work sites in every community that are sort of cooperating with the reach up program to do that. What that means is if you're doing that, you really have no time left in your day to do anything else. You likely don't have time to go get dosed if you um, need to go um, have appointments for substance use um, disorder or for um, to get treatment you likely don't have time to like running back and forth to pick up your kid and not pick up your kid is like, you know, it's all of the things. And then you don't really have time to like get more education or look for another job because you're like, everything is directed at this. Mm -hmm. And if you miss too much work, then you get 
penalized by your case manager, and that's called being sanctioned. Sorry, this may be a, a really stupid question. I've never had children, so mm-hmm. I haven't you know, needed to juggle these sorts of things. So if this is geared at families with young children, how does like child care, like who's watching the kids when the parents are doing the unpaid internship and who's paying for child? Like, I'm really confused. Like, where's the kids in all this? <laughs> so until your child is two, you're allowed to defer okay. for like just caretaking. But you're only allowed a certain number of years of doing that in your whole life. So if you've had multiple kids, you're not going to, you only get two years total. Is that right, Taylor? So if you have one, if you, if you have your first child, your case manager is actually likely going to warn you that you might not want to use up your whole two year deferral then because you might have another child and then you won't have any deferral time left at all. This is making and me then, hurt. So and there's all kinds of other stuff. So you're eligible for subsidized child care, but you're only eligible for subsidized child care if you're actively working or looking for work. And so like there's that loophole. And that's true for people who aren't on welfare. It's like a, that, there's a terrible catch-22 caught in, in our child care eligibility stuff with that. So there's that. You can pursue further education, but there are a lot of sort of thresholds and applications and extra hoops to jump through for that. It's, yeah, it's wild. And what happens... Um, and I think is really the really powerful relational piece of what you what you did, Taylor, with this reform, is that the relationship between the person who's hypothetically there to help the case manager, and the st- who stands in for the state, right, mm-hmm. and the person who is asking for help, becomes really punitive, really controlling, um, mm-hmm. because the person who's the case manager is required to check these boxes or penalize like that's how the system is built they're called sanctions and so the case managers even if they want to be like incredibly caring and supportive and um walking with someone instead of you know in front of them or whatever um aren't able to because it's their job requirements to engage in these punitive controlling acts and so you have some case managers who are totally breaking the rules of their own program which creates its own really complicated dynamic in terms of people's trust in the state and who gets the, to sort of have the rules eased and who doesn't and all kinds of implicit bias related to that. Mm-hmm. Lots of stories about that. I'm sure Taylor does too. And then, or you have people who are following the rules and like doing what they need to do at work. And it creates this enormous schism between the person seeking help and the state um, and is really sort of damaging to everyone. And so, you don't, you wind up with a lot of people lying to a lot of people because you have a program that doesn't actually work for people. Interesting. Taylor. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you, Taylor. What really is uh, resounding is that piece that you brought up sanctions. It it was something that we did not work on in this bill, but is top of mind as we continue this, this work moving forward which is we just uh, earlier in the show went over how how little money we are paying out to families. We are paying half of their basic needs for housing and just general expenses. And then when this case manager relationship, when they're not able to check off that box, we're talking about a sanction of $75 uh, reduction in award. And that there is still months of work that needs to happen before that sanction is lifted. And if a family isn't able to meet those checkboxes, if they're not able to meet those goals that are put forward by their case manager, that sanction only increases before eventually being moved off of the program entirely. And um, 
I think what's most challenging, well, I think there are a lot of challenging things about this program, um, is, is the fact that you have to give up so many of your rights to participate. And one in particular that we addressed in the bill is your right to child support. So yeah. if, an, a custodial, if a custodial parent has child support coming in, they have to give up their child support to the state. And then the Office of Child Support will then allow a $50 pass-through to the family. And the rest of that child support goes to help pay for the award. So it's actually reducing the cost to the state when this is money that is meant for the children. It's meant for the family to be able to succeed and thrive. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a one really challenging piece um, in looking at this is how are we really supporting folks when we're taking money and income that should be coming in to help lift them out of poverty and saying, no, we want to make sure that we're covering our costs on the back end. And, and I, you know, in your, de- you know, in defense of the work that you did just do, that we just did, the need for sanctions is going to be significantly lessened with this enormous shift in how the work requirement is, a- is applied. And so I think we're going to see a lot less sanctions in the future because there's less need to create loopholes and um, to stick people into boxes about how they spend their time productively. So I think we've done great work towards ending that. So we have um, just a few minutes before we need to hear from some of our underwriters, um, but we've, we've dove into some really interesting places. And, and what I am, what's really sitting with me right now is that di- what you said at the beginning, Taylor, that disconnect between kind of theory and practice um, and, you know, trying to shore, shore up that um, lessen that gap. But what do you feel before we we leave listeners at, at this point in the conversation? What do you feel they really need to understand about reach up um, and, and how we're supporting families in Vermont? I think that the biggest piece to highlight for reach up is, is thinking about putting yourself in exactly those shoes of giving up your right to child support, having to go through this arduous process to get very little funding means that there are significant uh, life circumstances that are coming up. And I think uh, what is so challenging is, is reducing that stigma that we have around folks who are in, in poverty or in low income um, because that, that piece when we talked about entitlement program is framed differently from folks who are looking at the program versus folks who are in the program. And um, I think that's the piece that I want listeners to, to think more about is who is able to get on to reach up. And honestly, the, the benefits as they stand right now are not truly lifting people up. Um, so we need to do better in the future to support folks. Thank you. Emily, any Anything you want to leave listeners with before we head to break? Well, I think after the break, it would be helpful to talk more about all the research that's been done in the last decade about how important and powerful it is for families to have just direct cash payments and how transformative that can be for our whole communities, not just um, for the individual parent, but also for the child and their network. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want to sort of this is not a wrap up, Olga, so don't mm-hmm. get mad at me. But that sort of the right to the child support, there's this other piece of right to privacy. So you actually, if you don't receive child support, you need to tell the state 
who your birth, the birth parent of your child is, and they pursue child support on your behalf, whether or not you want them to, and often against the process to have that not happen if you've experienced intimate partner violence, if that person is incarcerated, if you've been raped, is very high threshold to have the Office of Child Support not pursue wow. anything. It is a mass, massive violation of both people's privacy, dignity, and safety a lot of time. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for that sure. little tidbit. Yep. <laughs> and I'm not trying to make light of light of that. That's that's just astounding to me that mm-hmm. um, you have to give up the name of a of a birth parent, even if it might not be in the best interest of you and your child. So that's huge. Um, On that note, folks, we are going to quickly hear from some of our underwriters on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So stay tuned. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, as well as Spotify and Google Podcasts, and you can find us on the very lovely BCTV. We want to thank them for all the, the work they do editing our YouTube videos and getting them up online. That is really wonderful. And Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, it turns out that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station, nor the TV station, nor any of the platforms they may stream from, nor anyone's employers, partners, friends, or acquaintances. Just the people talking. Very thank you. Very thank you very much. Very welcome. <laughs> um, Taylor, I'd love to, to start with you. You said something during the break that I think listeners should hear about overturning stones. Yes, Um, and it's been very interesting, even for our own committee who uh, knows and and hears the most in in the legislature about this program, that as we continue to learn more, as we turn to uncover these stones, there's just more and more that is complicating for families. Um, and why during the break I said we could talk about this all all day and I am here for it because there is such reform that needs to happen. Um, and I really appreciate the work that we were able to do in 464. Um, but it is a, a big step, but there are so many more steps that need to be uh, taken. Thank you. And uh, Emily or Taylor, we've we touched on 464, but I'd love to hear kind of the bullet points of this legislation. Yes. So uh, 464 uh, does three improvements when it comes to benefits. The first is increasing the dependent age. Uh, Right now, for folks who have children, um, uh, once they're 18, they do not receive those benefits. And so we've actually increased that age from 18 to 22, as long as youth are still participating in uh, vocational or educational programming. And this is really aligning policy across the Family Services Division. Um, and as we heard from folks in testimony, is directly impacting uh, youth and with disabilities and making sure that they're able to be maintained on the program. Mm-hmm. 
the income benefits uh, are around working. So when folks are able to get into work, uh, right now the way that uh, the award is reduced is that uh, families are given $250 of their pay as an income disregard, meaning it does not impact their award. And then after that subtraction of 250, they get an additional 25% of their income, which is disregarded from that award. The rest of that funding directly impacts the award of, of that family or participant. And so what we did was change that from 250 to $350 that is going to the family and still maintaining that additional 25% of the rest of the income. And child support, as we were talking about before, currently uh, families are receiving $50 in disregard for their child support. And we are going to increase that up to $100 per family. I will note that on the federal level, uh, they have actually expanded guidance and allowance to uh, pay up to $100 per child um, in families. Mm -hmm. So I would say this is a, a modest or conservative step in that direction. Um, and usually we like to be ahead of our, our federal government, but on this one, we'll, we'll keep taking our time. Mm -hmm. And then a large bulk of the work was removing the work requirements and really reframing that universal engagement model and goal setting process um, to reduce that tension between case managers and participants, um, reducing the need for deferments because we understand work and workforce as a continuum, uh, and hopefully reducing sanctions because of that ability to participate in a variety of ways rather than narrow and uh, very punitive measures that are currently in statute. It, it seems like in this conversation, there's been a lot touched on between that relationship between the case manager and who's ever participating in the program. Have you had a chance, either of you, to talk to case managers? about 464 and how how they're feeling about it? I know uh, when talking with the program director as well as case managers, this is exactly what they are hoping for, for the program. They do not want that tension. They do want to do what's in the best interest of the family. And it is very difficult when the rules and statute are telling you that you have to focus on a punitive measure when really the support is wanted. And so this is, uh, it has been very welcomed by case managers because it's gonna make their work easier and it's going to be able to meet the needs of, of the participants. But I'm sure Emily also has heard uh, feedback on this one as well. I haven't, I just wanna, uh, so I when I first started as um, working in the DC in the economic services office, um, I worked with this incredible woman named Judy who had been working in sort of the economic services scene for her whole career. And she was sort of just at retirement when I met her. Um, and this was 20 years ago that I'm talking about. So she'd been working in the program for like 60 years ago from now, I guess, which is kind of wild to think about. So she was working for the state of Vermont in, and was one of the first case managers in the state of Vermont when Reach Up began, um, when we moved to the Reach Up model. And when we first did it in Vermont, it was actually a program that people who were receiving benefits could opt into. That's how we eased into it. And so they weren't opting into money. They were opting into case management support mm -hmm. to move 
back into the workforce. That was sort of how it began. And she had just these incredible stories about what she was able to do and the people she met and what relationships looked like and also what people were able to do in their lives when they had sort of one person who was there that they could check in with regular, regularly, set goals that would help them access the confusing wild universe of other supports that we have, help them find job training, all of those things, um, navigate paperwork and how powerful that was and how much sort of her soul really had been like slowly eaten away by doing the work the way she was now required to do the work now that it wasn't, a, the supports weren't a voluntary part of the program. She was certainly one of those case managers that really like sort of snuck around the rules all the time. Um, but she felt really bad about that because she was like always getting in trouble with her supervisor and she was always getting our individual district office in trouble because our metrics weren't right. And it was really um, the sort of pressure from the bureaucracy above in order to enact these punishing behaviors was really enormous. And I'm so excited to hear about that we can have sort of both the pressure from below changing that, but also some really incredible leadership um, with Aaron as head of reach up to really look in a different direction. Cause I know Aaron's been working for a really long time looking at research across the country. She's been part of all of these really forward looking working groups and pilots around direct payments to families and what that means, how best to do it, doing some like really, she's done all this really interesting behavioral economics research. Um, it's really pretty incredible. Like the, the time and energy and heart, but also science that's gone into this new bill that Taylor has led on. Mm-hmm. And Taylor, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. I, I, I am so fascinated that you were elected in 2020. And so you are a definite COVID representative. Um, what, what has COVID meant for, for reach up? Cause there was all these cash payments in the form of stimulus to many families that, that really did support a lot of households. Have you seen that um, impact reach up or how, what's that kind of nugget looking like? Oh, absolutely. When we look at the reach up program, um, there's a lot of overturning of families again, because of those reduced benefits. And if you're able to get off the program, uh, folks want to. And when we look at those benefits during COVID, uh, we saw a lot of families move from the reach up program to unemployment insurance because of the increased benefits that were provided on the federal level. So we saw a reduction in caseload during that time. So Mm -hmm. folks were able to get more benefits, support their family more fully, um, rather than having a a reach up payment that was not changing at all during COVID. The pieces that did change during COVID is recognizing the significance of one-time payments. Mm -hmm. And so uh, twice during the pandemic, we put forward one-time payments out to families to just allow them to have those extra funds. Um, And I I always think back to when when we were talking about sanctions before, um, when we're putting sanctions in place, we're not talking about reducing a family's capacity to say, go to the movies or to buy new clothes we are reducing their capacity to keep their utilities on. We're reducing their capacity to stay in their housing, Um, which to that end, the folks who stayed on ReachUp, we saw so many of them move into the GA motel voucher program or general assistance because their housing situation was so unstable going into 
the pandemic. Mm. And so we had about 400 reach up families that moved out of their housing into a motel for two years of their life. Um, and it was challenging. That's what we heard time and time again was the challenges that came up in having that transition, especially on the youth. And so something that we've started to implement since is making sure that those one-time payments are continuing. And the way that we're doing it is understanding that balance that we were saying before of how much we're budgeting for families, doing that rateable reduction, um, and knowing that there are extra funds at the end of the year. And we believe that those funds should be going to the families. And so now we have it in place that when, well, we actually have to do it on an annual basis, um, but when the, the year ends, when the budget ends, whatever is left that should have been paid out to families is divided among the families that are participating in reach up at that time as an additional one-time payment. Again, that will not impact their award, which I think is really important and troubling to say that if we're giving one-time payments, there could be this impact on uh, what we call an award from the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, we talked about the child tax credit on the show, I don't know, a month ago, something like that. Give or take, yeah. some, at some point in the recent, recent or past. And, um, you know, there's all the research about how transformative, how transformative sort of financial stability is for families. Um, but in doing the child tax credit, at the federal level, it's exempted from um, being included in all of these eligibility calculations. But on the state level, um, the feds still have all of these rules in place that we were really concerned that if we, if we did this the way we actually wanted to, which is monthly payments, the way the feds did it, um, that it would count towards people's benefits calculations. And so when we constructed the child tax credit, we purposely did it in just two payments instead of six payments because with two payments, we could like do a workaround and it wouldn't be part of people's benefits calculation. But it means that there's, and I sort of tell that story um, both to reference like a further conversation on what direct payments to families means, but also because there's a lot of work we need to do as um, sort of a Vermont legislative delegation with our congressional delegation to say that we really need reform at the national level if we're gonna be able to make this happen at the state level. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, I don't remember if Emily or, or Taylor, you said this, but you talked about how so much of what was baked into the reach up program was, was kind of punishing people or the impact was that it felt punishing. Are there still concepts baked into the, the reach up program that you need to extract? And if so, what, what are they? I mean, when we look at the the federal level, so TANF or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families really has four tenants to the program. One is providing temporary assistance to make sure that youth are maintained in their homes or in the homes of relatives. It also uh, promotes um, uh, to maintain a two-parent family system. Um, It focuses on uh, reducing how I refer to it is reducing teenage pregnancy um, and again, getting people into the workforce. Those are really the four main tenants of this program. And so even in that framing, that is what is guiding the state and how we're able to do this process. Mm-hmm. And what was concerning in testimony is that we heard that while we are changing the statute, there are about two 
200 pages of rules that have been written um, around the reach up program and that a majority of the rules were actually more restrictive than the statute itself. And so the hope is, is that when we are rewriting uh, the statute, they have to go back and they have to update the rules. And what we stated, but may have to do some extra work in is saying that the rules should not be more restrictive. If we are gonna do this work to make this expansive and supporting families, don't tailor our work in the other direction to reduce that capacity and, or continue to make those contradictions for case managers. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. What, what I'm really uh, appreciating about this conversation is, you know, so often Taylor, Emily, and I talk on the show about the stories we tell about policy or the stories we tell about our community and what's actually happening. And this seems like such a great example of that in, in kind of microcosm. Mm. Yep. I know, Taylor, you have to head out, I think, in about five minutes to get to committee. So I want to give you uh, the the floor. Um, is there still, you know, anything you want to update folks on or is there anything um, you think resources people should check out, anything like that, that re- regarding 464 and reach up? Well, first and foremost, again, thank you so much for having me on the show and being able to talk about the reach up program. Honestly, before coming into the legislature, I did not know much about this program, if anything at all. Um, But when digging into the budget um, and digging into just an assignment that my chair gave and looking into a program, it really, uh, it reminded me of my own uh, growing up when I, uh, when I had two low income parents who felt too proud to participate in a state program that, or they said, you know, we're not that needy. So we're not going to do this. And yet it still meant struggling through. All I could think is, why do we have such what could be a robust and amazing program in place, but cut down the capacity to be able to support families? Mm -hmm. And so I I would just encourage folks to learn more about the program overall. Um, Of course, support this legislation as it moves through the Senate. Um, So we still have one more hurdle in place. Um, but luckily, I believe that Senate Health and Welfare Committee is going to start taking testimony as soon as next week um, on this. So uh, fingers crossed that we can make this uh, policy uh, put into action. But I think the last piece is really recognizing the implicit bias and the stigma that we have around folks who are impoverished. I think um, Again, there's this rhetoric out there, whether it's based in racism or classism, around folks who are low income being lazy or just wanting to to stay on state programs. And what we have heard time and time again from case managers is that families just want to work. They just want to be thriving in their communities. They want to participate in whatever ways are possible, as I think we all strive for. So it's this piece of not seeing each other as different because of our means or our income, but recognizing that there are such structural barriers that are talked about so often on this show and talked about so often in the state house, whether it's transportation and knowing that 122 reach up families don't even have a car or access to a car and are on a waiting list through Good News Garage to be able to do that. How child 
care and upstanding more child care centers in the state so that folks are able to have a place where their children are watched over and cared for while they are doing all those other activities to get back into the workforce. Or whether it's housing and knowing that in this program, we don't recognize the significant cost of housing here in the state. And by paying $400 or $450 if you're in Chittenden County, it still makes me chuckle that that's like the, oh, we're doing so much better by adding $50 in for Chittenden County. It's not enough to support families. And what I hope for the future is a, a fully funded program. And fully funded means not doing this rateable reduction. Every year we know that we are not putting the enough means to pay the full basic needs allowance to families. And I hope, and I think through this education and doing legislation like this, people in the state house are starting to learn and understand a bit more about the program. Even in appropriations, we had to do the same kind of run through of like, what are the benefits? What does this program actually mean? Um, but that was a, a 10 minute version of that um, <laughs> and still not enough. But I think uh, that's what I've learned through this work, uh, especially in the time of COVID, is that it's not incremental change. It feels like incremental change, but it's holding that long-term goal of if this is what we can do this year, something that we were told from the beginning, you cannot remove work requirements from this program. And yet that's exactly what we did. And we did it in collaboration with the department, though challenging at times, because we kept saying, we want to do what's best for you. We want to make this job easier for you and your case managers, but more importantly, we want this to be easier for families. So I, again, could talk about this all day, but I'm just so appreciative to have any opportunity uh, to talk about the Reach Up program, especially with Emily, who has taught me so much in this work, um, but is just a, a beacon of light as we talk about ways that we can make it better. Oh, thanks, Thank Taylor. Taylor. Emily, quickly, you you put up two fingers when Taylor said... Um, oh, well, there's hurdle. the governor. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. There's the senator, and then there's the governor. Oh, yes. How, how likely do we think... I know it's, it's crystal ball here, but how likely do we think the governor will sign this? A uh, challenging question. I think we will see how uh, the time in the Senate goes. That's sometimes where new obstacles arise. Mm -hmm. But because of, of the collaboration with the department, um, especially when it comes to rewriting the work requirements and the deferments, um, my hope is that that piece in particular will be signed into law this year. And the income benefits uh, maybe are more challenging and because money. Yeah. Emily, anything you want to add before if people are interested in diving into advocacy on this, whether you work in the system or live in the system or just care, um, Voices for Vermont's Children is has been doing some really pretty longstanding work on welfare reform in Vermont. Um, and so they're a great group to get in touch with or to follow if you want to sort of get regular updates on the reform work that we're doing. And as always, if you want to see what testimony the legislature is taking, if what bills are up for um, taking feedback on, you can go to the state's website, vermont.gov, and you can, you can find your way to the legislative page. Taylor, if people want to find out more information about you, where, where can they go? 
Oh, they can find me on all of the social medias. I try to make it easy at Taylor Small VT um, or contact me via email. Happy to talk more about this and other human services programs. Thank you. Emily, how about for you? Where can people find more information? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to my newsletter and my weekly office hours and um, monthly events, as well as links to all the socials and um, email and phones. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at our Facebook page, um, the MontpelierHappyHour.Captivate.fm, where you find your podcasts on BCTV and on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And I am just going to toast to the great work you did, Taylor, on this bill. And good luck as the bill moves forward. Thank you. Thank Have you a great so weekend, much, everyone.